0: Welcome to episode two of Arctic 360's Breaking the Ice. My name is Paris.
1: And my name is Rebecca. And we are your co-hosts. This week, we had the opportunity to speak with Sean Pryor, Andrew Dumbrell and Michael Kingston about shipping in the Arctic. We learned about the role of climate change and the impact it has on the Arctic ecology and communities in the Arctic, and took time to discuss the proposed ban on heavy fuel oil in the Arctic region, and what this could mean for the future of the Arctic.
0: Andrew Dumbrell is a Lead Specialist in Maritime Shipping and Conservation at the World Wildlife Fund and has been involved in working with environmental NGOs for the past 20 years. Through research, advocacy, and engagement with indigenous communities and international forums like the Arctic Council and the International Maritime Organization, Andrew believes that reducing the impact of development in the north and safeguarding nature can support healthy Arctic communities.
1: Dr. Sean Pryor is lead advisor to the Clean Arctic Alliance, a coalition of 18 non-profit groups campaigning to prohibit the use and carriage of heavy fuel oil as fuel in the Arctic. Dr. Sean Pryor focuses on interpreting marine science to support conservation and management advocacy and building consensus around marine policy development.
0: Michael Kingston is an Irish maritime lawyer and throughout his career has demonstrated a commitment to polar issues. He has been placed in Lloyd's List as Global Maritime Lawyer of the years 2014 and 15, and he is the Managing Director of Michael Kingston Associates based in London, where he has represented and spoken on behalf of the IMO.
1: get started uh, maybe we can sort of go around uh, the room and just provide a quick introduction um, to yourself and maybe a little bit about your work um, in general and then maybe how it pertains to the heavy fuel oil.
2: Yeah okay I trained initially as a a marine scientist a chemical oceanographer really and my first role was working for a trade association for ports and shipping so working on policy. Since then I've spent rather horrifyingly 30 years I've realized working with environmental groups and environmental coalitions. And during that time, I've spent around 25 years representing these groups at the International Maritime Organization on on international shipping. Um, And I've been seconded from time to time to different government roles, um, often in relation to shipping. So in response to the Sea Empress, which was a big oil spill in the UK.
0: Yeah, um, and Michael?
3: Uh, well, my name is Michael Kingston, and I work as an international in international maritime regulatory development and enforcement. And my background is working as a lawyer, particularly closely with the insurance industry in London and with Lloyds of London, and some of their leading reports into accidents such as the Costa Concordia, the Deepwater Horizon. Disaster and and, and Oil Spill and Lloyd's uh, 2012 Arctic Arctic Report, an Arctic Opening Opportunity and Risk in the High North. And I've been heavily involved in the uh, development and um, attempts to uh, implement the Polar Code in a harmonized manner. I I currently work um, as an advisor to the United Nations International Maritime Organization on polar issues and also fishing vessel safety and uh, um, illegal unreported and unregulated fishing. And I am uh, work as a special advisor to the Arctic Council's Protection of the Arctic Marine Environment Working Group, and particularly focused on the development of the Arctic Shipping Best Practices Information Forum, which has been um, put in place with a web portal for the implementation of the polar code to try and um, put all the information on best practices for implementation in one place. Thank you,
4: and Andrew. Thanks for the invitation, Rebecca Paris. I'm with WWF Canada, and and WWF uh, Global. I sit on WWF's uh, International Maritime Organization delegation and participate in those negotiations and discussions on a wide variety of issues, heavy fuel oil. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions, underwater noise, uh, vessel pollution and discharges, um, also disturbance and marine strikes on uh, whales and other species—quite a quite a wide range. Um, in Canada, I um, I participate in in regulatory hearings. Specifically, the Baffinland mine is one that's been very important and ongoing for for many years and of course shipping is a big part of that development and the phase two proposal is under environmental review right now so we're in the thick of that and um i sit on the arctic council uh with michael and others uh, sean too at the protection of the arctic marine environment uh working group which looks at many issues many of the issues that i just uh, i just mentioned
0: and so we were wondering if you guys could explain how the changing ecology of the Arctic is influencing the interest um, that we're seeing be given to the Arctic.
2: I'm happy to to lead off. I mean, certainly from, from our perspective, the, the, the changes that we're seeing in the Arctic, the loss of, of summer sea ice, the, the reduction in sea ice extent, um, is offering new opportunities to international shipping. I think both in terms, or particularly perhaps in terms of of domestic traffic, so opportunities for exploitation um, in the waters of the Arctic countries, and so we're seeing quite a big increase in what we call destinational traffic, traffic that's going from an Arctic country out into the waters involved probably in exploitation of resources in some manner and then coming back into port. But it's also increasingly attractive to shipping, looking for shorter routes, cheaper routes um, to to cross the oceans or or to cross the Arctic from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean or vice versa.
4: Building on that, ice is habitat and it's a highway for the people in the north. So uh, birds, whales, uh, fish all depend on ice to uh, as habitat for feeding, for staging ground, for a a number of um, ecological systems and features. And, you know, of course, people live in the Arctic and they have for many, many uh, generations. And uh, the ice is used to get to and from uh, hunting areas. Uh, Traditional practices of indigenous and Inuit people rely on ice. For, for many of those uh, uses. So the loss of sea ice has a profound impact uh, locally or regionally on you know, cultural practices and a way of life for Inuit and indigenous people in the north. And it's of global significance. It's a climate regulator, right? It's the, it's the refrigerator um, of the planet. And uh, without sea ice, uh, that refrigerator becomes unplugged and the global system becomes unhinged. And that's what's underpinning the climate emergency uh, that we see now. So, you know, the change of the environment and the melting of sea ice has, has significant and profound impacts, not only locally,
3: but also uh, globally. Um, Just to echo echo what Andrew um, has said, it is having a profound impact on the lower latitudes and our weather systems, the meteorological balance, the jet stream is regulated by, by the Arctic. It comes up north of Norway, west of Ireland, where I'm from, and north of Norway, and it keeps us... Um, unusually warm on on this latitude and then goes into the arctic and comes back down the other side past past canada and the melting ice is having a profound impact on on the um balance of the of the gulf stream but also the jet stream and we've all experienced weather variants in the last number of years extreme weather and and it is linked to what's happening in the arctic and i think that's why one of the reasons why there is a huge interest the um, observers of the Arctic Council have exponentially increased over the last decade significantly. There are two further applicants in, in, um, for observer status um, this year um, in May in the ministerial meeting in Reykjavik, Ireland and Estonia. Um, and um, a lot of it is due to the fact that um, what is happening in the Arctic has on the lower latitudes. And then you have obviously fish stock variations and changes with fish moving due to these water temperature changes that affects the inhabitants of the Arctic, but also the um, fishing industry in, in, in in the lower latitudes. Um, having to go further for fish as they move north and 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 vice versa. And then of course, you have all the um the uh, melting ice and the ability to do things in the Arctic that didn't previously exist. Sean mentioned this um exploration of uh, in relation to hydrocarbons and and minerals Um, that slowed down with the fall of of the oil price but the also the increase in the possibility of using the um, both the northwest passage and and the northern sea route to get through to the pacific
1: so i guess sort of leaning from that um, obviously with the the changing landscape um, melting sea ice especially summer sea ice we see more interest in shipping in the region um, as well as potential for extraction as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the uh, IMO's uh, heavy fuel oil ban um, in the Arctic, how that um, relates to the environmental risk that we may see um, with increasing amounts of heavy fuel oil being transported and used in the Arctic region?
2: The, certainly. The- What we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing a gradual increase in the amount of of traffic using, choosing to use the Arctic. It's increasing. It's not increasing dramatically at the moment, um, though it's a steady increase over recent years. But what we are seeing is that larger and larger vessels are starting to use the Arctic and so although the numbers of ships hasn't gone up dramatically as yet, the volumes of heavy fuel oil, uh, which is the primary fuel used by ships globally uh, at the moment, has increased quite substantially. Uh, And in fact, the the increase in the amount of heavy fuel fuel oil being carried in the Arctic has has gone up a lot. And the amount of heavy fuel oil being used in the Arctic, burnt in the Arctic, has increased a lot as well. And along with that, um, there's been a a rise in the black carbon emissions that come from burning heavy fuel oil. Um, This this is a a problem or a concern from from the point of view of the environmental groups and, and indigenous communities as well. Uh, because heavy fuel oil poses a significant risk in terms of oil spills. Um, No oil spill is good, but heavy fuel oil is particularly difficult to respond to, to treat, um, if spilt. In fact, very, very difficult even in more temperate latitudes where there are facilities to hand, probably virtually impossible in the Arctic, where response facilities are few and far between and the opportunities to to be able to access a spill are likely to be very limited. But it's also the burning of the fuel that's the problem as well. It produces high concentrations of uh, black carbon, which is um, both damaging in terms of human health, but also a very serious problem in terms of of increasing the snow and ice melt. So as, as a consequence, uh, Environmental groups and and indigenous communities too have been pushing uh, the IMO, the International Shipping Body that's responsible for re- the UN body that's responsible for regulating international shipping, to ban heavy fuel oil use and carriage in the Arctic. A ban's already been intru- introduced in the Antarctic, um, actually around a decade ago now, ten years ago, and that was because of the perceived risk of spills. But because the Arctic is Geopolitically more tricky. Uh, The nature of shipping in the Arctic is very different. It's proved to be much harder to get a a similar ban in place in in the Arctic. A ban is now on the table, it's still under discussion. It has been approved um, and is due to be adopted later this year. There are, however, some significant limitations with the ban that's on the table. It will, Although it will come into effect in 2024, it includes provisions that will allow some ships to be exempt and a provision that will allow the Arctic coastal countries to be able to issue waivers to ships flying their flags while operating in their waters. So it, it, it has significant limitations and won't truly take effect until 2029.
0: I just have a quick question uh for clarity um and maybe this might help uh listeners. So from my understanding diesel uh is considered a heavy fuel, right? No,
2: no. No, diesel diesel's a lighter fuel. It's still not good in terms of spills, um but what what we're wanting to happen is for for the ships that are currently using heavy fuel oils to move away from the very heavy residual fuels to lighter diesel distillate fuels or or other types of propulsion
3: heavy fuel oil is like sludgy sludgy almost pure oil it's 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 really thick and and um and tarry type oil um, and whereas diesel falls into distillate fuel i think um as um but, but yeah heavy fuel oil is the real nasty stuff just to help too about
4: uh, behavior of heavy fuel oil when it's spilled the 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 key with the difference between distillate and heavy fuel oil is its persistence uh, in the marine environment uh, when it is spilled. So it doesn't evaporate and it actually emulsifies um, on the ocean surface, which which means a a number of things. One, it can wash ashore, uh, contaminate a much bigger area in the ocean environment uh, from the spill. It's very difficult to clean up uh, a distillate or diesel spill. is is uh, three to four times less expensive uh, to clean up than than an HFO spill, and that's mainly because of its you know it's widespread after it it, it does get um, does get spilled, and that emulsification really interferes with surface frequency marine life. Like, uh, like whales and birds. So the connection here to communities, and particularly indigenous communities in the Arctic, is that the ocean is their grocery store, right? In, in Nunavut, in Canada, 50% of the daily diet, over 50% of the daily diet of indigenous and Inuit communities comes from the sea. So if you have an oil spill, it's just devastating. Uh, for way of life of uh, those communities. And HFO, because it sticks around for weeks and months and years, has an immense impact on livelihoods, culture, food gathering, subsistence, and that grocery store. So those are the stakes, you know, uh, when we're talking about heavy fuel oil and the connections to to people in the North. Thank you for uh, clarifying that.
3: I think the other, the other thing about heavy fuel oil is to, to remember um, following on from what Andrew and Sean have said is that we, we have, um, you know, warnings about oil spills from the Deepwater Horizon disaster, et cetera, which escalated the worry about spills of oil in, 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 the, um, in the Arctic. Um, and one of the big problems is that you s- the temperatures are also so low, relatively speaking, that it makes it much more difficult to deal with um with the cleanup because um you have to use dispersants and, and so on with, with oil to try and break it down. And you know, none of this is very good for the environment at all. Um <clears throat> so you don't want to the incident to happen in the first place. But when you're dealing with cold temperatures, it's very, very difficult to break it down. Um and You've got ice then inter- intermixed with all of this. So you've got a very big problem. And and some um, studies have been carried out, but not conclusively, sort of it hasn't been conclusively arrived at as to how, this, how, how such an incident would be cleared up. So obviously preventing it from happening in the first place is extremely important. Um, it's also important to remember when people talk of the IMO, It's our IMO, it's our International Maritime Organization. It's not something that makes decisions on its own, the Secretariat. It's made up of all the states of of the world who are member states. And it has um, affiliate uh, members such as WWF and Clean Arctic Alliance. and, And so it's a consensus organization. And so when things don't happen, in a in a manner and as quickly as it would be liked by some, um, we must remember that it's a consensus organisation, and 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 sort of there's a lot of negotiating in the corridors, and um, when there is pushback on certain issues, as Sean has mentioned, um, it's because some states are not as forthright and 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 um, and, and as uh, strong as others in in the determination to to get measures in place. Now that may be um, for a number of reasons. There are some reservations with some of the Arctic states about um, supplies for local communities because some of the existing ships are only operating on heavy fuel oil, bringing c- cargo in. That's one issue I've heard.
0: I also want to double back to uh, something that Sean said earlier with regards to environmental groups and um we were wondering like what the environmental ngos response such as like the clean arctic alliance has been to the proposed ban
2: well we've got serious reservations about the ban um you know michael's right There, there are a number of countries that have concerns about the heavy fuel oil ban um but From our perspective, we see ships nowadays being able to use both heavy fuel oil and these lighter diesel distillate fuels. They have to do it routinely in Europe and North America, where there are emission controls in place already in coastal waters. Um, But through the the lobbying of of some of the Arctic countries, Russia in particular, They have got this caveat in the current regulation that's due to be adopted later this year, which means that for certainly the best part of of the 2020s, heavy fuel oil will still be able to be used in the Arctic. It it is tricky. We are asking for a change in practice, but one that isn't impossible, one that, that many ships are already following today you know the amount of ships using alternatives to heavy fuel oil in the arctic is is over 50% Um, But as I said before, it's it's it tends to be the larger ships that are using heavy fuel oil. So they're carrying larger volumes of heavy fuel oil. The other limitation uh, of of the heavy fuel oil ban that we're concerned about is the fact that many ships will be exempt and certainly the newer ships uh, will be exempt. Uh, The reason being that they have protected fuel tanks. So they have two layers of, of hull really or skin between the fuel and the outside water, the surrounding water. Now, this does offer an extra layer of protection uh, in some circumstances. And from a number of oil spills around the world, it's it's been determined that having this sort of double hull or double skin system will be better. And for many groundings on soft uh, sediment habitats, that is the case, that is true. But you run across, you run into rocks or run into large pieces of ice And that double skin is not likely to prevent an oil spill. So it's frustrating because, you know, we understand why people have come forward with these arguments, why they feel that there is the need for these provisos, these, these caveats. But at the end of the day, it's the Arctic ecosystem and the Arctic communities that are being put at risk. And what we're asking, the change we're looking for, is not difficult to do. It will cost a little bit more, Michael referred to the socioeconomic impacts there will be an increased cost but most of the studies in fact I think all of the studies on socioeconomics have shown that that increased cost is minimal and there are ways in which if, if there is an increased cost that could be compensated by government supporting communities or supporting the the, the local industry and in moving away from these very polluting oils.
1: Yeah a question I sort of had was related to the so we brought up the geopolitical um, concerns of the arctic region where we didn't really see that as much with the Antarctic ban and we're running into a little bit more resistance with the arctic ban given the interests of many states in the region and a question i sort of had was in relation to china's recent um, new five-year plan um, and their focus on the polar silk road um, and we have sort of seen that for the past few years their interest in the arctic region do you think that there's been sort of a shift um, in our understanding of who has a say um, in Arctic shipping and the Arctic region as it is becoming more of a region where many actors are interested in rather than maybe the five Arctic literal states?
3: I, I think I think you need to look no further than the front page of Times UK yesterday, and <clears throat> there was an article um, regarding the importance of looking at um mineral extraction and and etc. in 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 the northern regions and um intermarried with that was the uk's uh, suggested over reliance on uh, with on china at present and the backdrop to all of this um of course is that recently there were bans on um or or or, or there was this um political um, issue regarding British MPs being earmarked by China as persona non grata. So it's no secret um, that China's interests in the northern regions um, has increased over the last number of years. You need to look no further than the um, Yamal project with Russia, which is a joint venture between um, Russia, China and Total Oil who are the French oil oil company, taking vast amounts of of LNG from the uh, Yamal platform through the Northern Sea Route. Massive ships, um, ice-class ships have been built um, and and are now operating on a year-round basis um, using the Northern Sea Route, which is part of this Silk Road strategy. Um, and there have been joint statements by China and Russia um, in relation to ongoing collaboration. Then on the other side of of the Arctic, you see interest in Greenland and the current um, political situation there, and, and it's been watched very closely by a number of a number of states. And then it's known that China have expressed interests there. There's huge mineral resources. And that lent to the article yesterday in the in the UK Times. So um, yes, it is an increased um area of interest for China. And in in the current sort of political, geopolitical climate, there's sort of it's like a game of chess. Personally speaking, I find it a little bit sort of overwhelming in terms of the ridiculousness of, of of what goes on at the higher echelons of 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 politics between Russia and the United States and North Korea and China and, and you know, but that's the world that we that the world that we live in. And 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 it's it's unfortunate that almost um childish games are played with such serious issues and and with regions and so on and that we can't all sort of get on a little better in the world that we live in but that's the reality so yes
2: M- michael's mentioned the investment from china in in yamal and you and we see chinese bankrolling really development in iceland in greenland in in russia and clearly paving the way for for what they see as their future operations in the arctic I have to say though that they've always had the opportunity in terms of international shipping um, developments, regulation and developments, they've always been there. They've always been able to be active in that arena. And they've had observer status at the Arctic Council only in more recent years, but again, they are there, so they are able to influence or to have a say in terms of of discussions there too. And at the moment, I certainly don't see them playing a major role, but what I do see them doing is is backing uh, the countries where their investments are. So if Russia object to uh, a new regulation or a new development of some sort within the IMO, China in a, in, invariably then backs Russia's position, and that can be then quite intimidating to try and, and and encourage other countries to support change in a different direction, because that's two very major countries, two very major players at the IMO having having an impact.
4: Just um, maybe a, a short addition. You know, there is a dynamic. I think what Michael has said and and sean too about the imo and it being consensus and you know we're talking about global rules here there is a place and a need for domestic action around shipping regulations and the northwest passage one of these you know polar routes one of these shipping routes that that is being proposed or is being used you know it, it Canadians uh, claim it as their own, um, and and the U.S. Uh, claims it as an international uh, waterway. So it it's not completely clear, but but much of the Canadian Arctic is within, you know, the Canadian uh, exclusive economic zone, and and some of it within the territorial seas, which is the 12 nautical miles out, uh, which states have much more control over than than other parts of the ocean. So if there is a weak IMO ban on HFO, if there are insufficient climate targets and greenhouse gas reductions at the IMO that don't meet Paris, which is, which is what we're seeing, states can act um, in their waters. And, and I think it's in, in domestic and Canadian interest, just talking about the Northwest Passage, to put in strong domestic regulations, which ensure protection of the environment and protection of livelihoods. So there is a, an international dynamic to this, but there also is a domestic reality. And... You could argue, you know, the faster and the stronger some of those environmental provisions are that a state puts in place, you know, the less attractive these cheaper and shorter shipping routes, which they're being billed as. I don't think they're they're cheaper or shorter uh, for many reasons. The less attractive those will be to to states like China and to international operators.
2: I think it's worth. Pointing out on top of that as well that Norway have already gone down that route. They've had a ban on heavy fuel oil in place for some of the waters around the island archipelago of Svalbard for, I think it's around five or six years now. And from the beginning of next year, they are extending that to cover all of the waters, all all of the 12 nautical mile territorial seas around Svalbard. So no ship with heavy fuel oil on board will be allowed in or out of Svalbard in uh, from the beginning of next year so moving faster than the IMO and protecting their own interests and obviously from their perspective they just see it as being necessary to protect the fishing and the tourism industry that is so important on on the uh, archipelago of Svalbard
0: both of you guys are pointing to a really interesting point regarding development, especially for people living in the Arctic, I'm thinking. I'm seeing a dichotomy of like trying to find ways that we can, trying to balance development with the uh, environmental protection. And so things like broadband internet, right, um, or things we, we have access to um, down in the southern parts of Canada. Is there a way of balancing the, like all of these conflicting interests
3: you know, on the one hand, the traditional indigenous life of, of, um, you know, it's affected all, all, all communities, I suppose, around the world, where you you have, you know, there are enhancements in society that benefit everyone, a medicine and, and uh, like you say, the need to communicate and, and um, the internet and everything, but it's a fine balance between Um, Needing that and and having that and then it not going over the top to sort of destroy the Indigenous traditions and and so on and so forth. Just from a shipping perspective, very much um, part of the um, approach and involvement of the Indigenous community in the work that I've been involved in is to try and highlight the Indigenous traditions and where there is development where it may benefit perhaps with an increase in income for local communities or where there is um possibility for investment um the the word that's always used is sustainable um i'm not quite sure you know who has ever defined that precisely but it is very important that any proposed developments are done in a very well thought through manner so as not to lose that balance of tradition and and the culture of of Northern Canada and 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 elsewhere by overbearing development. You know, the typical historical type of development that we've seen. We've seen it here in Ireland where I'm from a massive oil terminal. With you know two thousand people working on it, and it's open for ten years, and then it goes bust, and a big mess is left behind. And you know that's the last thing we want to see, in anywhere in 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 the Arctic area. And that's the sort of dangerous sort of um, moment we're in, or have been in, and that we're all trying to um, fight um, to prevent happening. A sort of boom and bust with big corporations coming in and taking advantage. So. You know from that perspective i've been working to ensure that you know that doesn't happen and and regulation is important and best practice in industry to ensure that 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 doesn't happen but quite on the sort of micro level of the indigenous communities getting more access to better medicine and broadband and you know i'm not really an expert in that area but i can understand what you're. What you're saying there is a need for advancement of the lives of the indigenous community where they're having social and 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 medical issues and and economic issues and that does need to be enhanced but it needs a very very informed consultative um and um and and um sort of sensitive approach
0: no thank you thank you for turning that question into got a gold mine (laughs) Uh, Andrew, it looked like you also had something uh, to say.
4: Uh, shipping is, in some forms, an essential service in the Arctic. You know, it brings the necessities of life. So we need shipping in the Arctic: goods, building supplies, food, uh, medical supplies, trucks, cars. You know, they all get transported by ship. the The difficulty is that that shipping comes with environmental impacts right? Underwater noise, fuel spills, discharges of pollutants. Uh, Sean mentioned black carbon. You know, black carbon emitted directly in the Arctic from a ship is five to ten times more potent. Climate forcer, melting of the ice, warming of that region. So that can't be ignored uh, in the development or economic uh, equation. So, you know, the Clean Arctic Alliance and uh, members of the Arctic Council and many states of the IMO, you know, realize this and realize that we need stricter, more effective, you know, immediate restrictions and and a transition to, to cleaner fuels. Um, and that's at the heart of what this, you know, the HFO ban is about is is getting the Arctic fleet off of the world's most polluting Uh, fuel, right? It's the bottom of the barrel type of fuel. It's the first step in the decarbonization pathway that needs to happen. And we've highlighted some of the the spill impact. So so these ships can transition in the short term in the Arctic to distillate fuel, and then in the medium and long term to uh, renewable fuels, hydrogen, ammonia, uh, you know that's all possible, but we need the right investments and the right frameworks and targets uh, to be put in place for that to happen. So, so what many of us are saying is, yes, we need shipping, but we need it to be done in a in a, a, a lower impact and on be put on a decarbonization pathway uh, immediately because it does it is essential uh, for for many in the Arctic.
2: Yeah, I just add, I I think development and environmental protection have to go hand in hand. And at the moment, it feels like environmental protection is always trying to catch up with development. When we talk about heavy fuel oil, we're talking about um, a fuel that has been banned on land because of the dangers it posed. Um, it was considered inappropriate to use it in power stations, to use it in transport on land. I don't, I'm not even sure it was able to be used in many forms of transport, but it's been banned for some time on, in terrestrial systems. And as a result, the market expanded in the marine environment because it was further offshore, it was out of sight um, and it could be used still. In fact, it's worth mentioning. It can only be used in in ships at sea if it if you use a lighter fuel to warm it up in the first place. It, it I don't think it can be used at all just just from cold. It, it's too viscous. It's too heavy. It doesn't burn. But what's really frustrating, I think, from our point of view, is that we have the chance to get it right in the Arctic. It, it's comparatively underdeveloped. Um, people have lived in harmony with the environment in the Arctic for forever for as long as there's been people living in the Arctic and we're, we're at a point now where things are changing and they're changing fast but we're starting from a comparatively clean sheet and we have the opportunity to get it right if we put all the right elements in place to start with but at the moment I think there's a real real fear that we're squandering that chance.
1: I guess sort of as like a final question I wanted to sort of touch on the recent uh, Suez Canal crisis I think that was on the top of everyone's mind for the past little bit. And I'm just curious to see how that maybe impacted our perception or the public's perception of shipping through the Arctic. Uh, If the incident sort of drew attention to the Arctic as a next viable option, as, oh, if we had another route, this could be great. Or if it also really highlighted the potential dangers we see, um, as there are accidents, there are things that go wrong in these shipping routes that we go through um, day after day. Um, so from your perspective, I, it may be sort of more anecdotal because it was very recent, but do you think the crisis really drew more attention to the positives of shipping through the Arctic or maybe pointed out some of the potential issues that we may see?
2: I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure really. I think, I think what is interesting is how that became a public story. And people on the street who have never really thought about shipping, never really talked about shipping, are suddenly now talking and, and wondering about where things go, how do how do the goods get from the Far East to Europe to North America, etc. And so I think there's been a shift in people's perception of trade, as a result, and hopefully that's for the better. In terms of the Arctic, I don't know. Certainly, Ross Atom put out a lot of adverts and 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 talk on the internet or tweet saying come and visit the northern sea route it's it's viable we'll make sure your ships don't get stuck in the ice etc but it's a big change for ships to change their routes that way even if they are shorter or whether or not they're shorter but also but, you know, to counterbalance that somewhat, we're increasingly seeing, and it's, it's been repeated again in the news in the last few days, we're repeatedly seeing shipping countries, sorry, shipping companies making the commitment to not use the Arctic. And actually Evergreen, um, who are the company that run or operated the Evergiven, one of those companies that has made that commitment, they've, they've signed a pledge to say that they're not going to choose Arctic routes for their shipping. Um, and MSC is another one that's, that's been in the news just recently. So I don't know. I think, yeah, there was some talk about maybe offering that the Arctic as an alternative, but but whether it's really ready yet to take the volumes of trade that are going through the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, um, I think we're a little way off that yet, but but maybe Michael has some different ideas or thoughts.
3: Thanks, Sean. Well, my, my answer to your question, Rebecca, is that um, both is the answer so um, there was an increased in, in interest in shipping through the uh, through the Arctic, as Sean says, because uh, Russia took the opportunity. Um, and it is not no secret that were you a- able to freely travel through that route, you'd save between Rotterdam and and say um, Darlin in China um something like 13 days and that's a pretty significant um pretty f- significant saving in terms of time however um as has been highlighted by the um suez canal is that shipping relies critically on scheduling everything is about scheduling it's fine tuned and you have to um Ships ships arrive and and it's sort of almost computerized in all these massive um, um, companies. Well, it is computerized. Thousands of crates are, are loaded on and 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 discharged, and it relies on critical timing. and And we saw the massive back uh, backlog that was caused. Um, in one of the two main archeries of world shipping, the Suez Canal, and then obviously on the other side, the world, the Panama Canal. And we saw the consequences of what happens if there's a backlog. And you need only look at one ship alone to see what um, carnage is caused with 20,000. And on the biggest ones, they carry 23,000 crates. And because of the um, harsh weather conditions, the um unpredictability of the ice it is not realistic at the moment for containerized um transits through the northern northern sea route even though it ha- was highlighted by uh, by Russia um and that's not going to happen anytime soon. Costco shipping did a trial run through there um a few years ago and as Sean said um a number of companies have sort of declared that they're not interested you know, for the obvious reasons that I've just explained logistical reasons and, and, and scheduling, but then the other um, um, issue um, and why I answered both is the um, highlighting of the potential dangers of shipping and accidents. And I've been sort of heavily quoted in the media in the last weeks since the evergreen blockage of the obviousness of the need for salvage equipment be in place, not just in the Arctic, where there is a huge problem um, of of remoteness, um, but even in the lower latitudes, there is a huge lack of equipment for dealing with one of these massive container ships. And in fact, no equipment exists for getting containers off um, these 20,000, 23,000 container vessels. And if you look at what happened in the Suez Canal, um, they were dredging the bow and the stern, but not one container was removed from the vessel, which is the obvious way to lighten it. Um, is bec- uh, and the reason for that is that the equipment is not readily available anywhere because industry and government have not put it in place. We called for a, a levy of 10 cents per container in 2013 to build a fund to have equipment in place. It doesn't exist. So, God knows. What's going to happen if a vessel like that ends up um, in, in anywhere else on some coast where you can't dredge its bow and its stern?
1: Thank you, Michael. Andrew, do you have anything to
3: add there before we wrap up? Um, I'll just say, I mean, that was
4: uh, it's a really good outline, Michael and, and Sean too. I mean, the larger the ship, the larger the problem. I think that goes without saying, and. And I think that's what really struck people is the sheer size of that vessel, 20,000 containers. And some of these vessels are 25,000 containers, where in 2007, the largest was 8,000 containers. So they, it's ballooned. So oil spills, underwater noise, invasive species, greenhouse gas emissions, this ship is operating on heavy fuel oil. So. You're, you, you want to introduce the, this large problem into a fragile environment like the Arctic, I mean, it's, it, it's a disaster waiting to happen um, in that in, the harsh operating environment, as, as Michael has said. So, so I don't, I think it's the opposite as far as attractiveness to Arctic shipping. You know, that's, I don't think regulators, indigenous communities, Uh, and current operators in the Arctic want that large a problem uh, in their backyard.
2: There's one thing that occurred to me, and we kind of moved on from it, but I think Michael and Andrew have just touched on it again at the end there. And that's, you know, it's not just about the ship in the environment in the Arctic. It's about if there is an accident, what do you do? If there's a lot of oil spilt and you're recovering the oil, if you are able to recover the oil in the first place, it has to go somewhere if as the oil as andrew said the oil emulsifies as happens with heavy fuel oil you can't find enough ships you can't bring ships to put it onto you've got to put it to shore if the if it's a container ship you've got to put the containers on something so there isn't the infrastructure in the arctic to be able to do that there isn't the places to put the recovered oil safely securely to stop it causing further contamination on shore there's nowhere for the containers to go there aren't the roads and the railways there to be able to then remove everything that you've moved up there or, or even to get the resources up there to deal with an incident of any sort
1: wonderful thank you so much i'm conscious of all your time i know you're all very busy so i i will let you all go but from paris and myself thank you so much for joining us today i know i learned a lot
3: pleasure well done paris and rebecca good to see you sean and andrew have a good day
2: take care